Welcome to the Virginia Eats and Drinks podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Evans Hilton, and I invite you to grab and eat, grab a drink, and get ready to think. Our podcast is a compliment to the Virginia Eats and Drinks show, heard Fridays from 6 until 7 on air on AM 790 WNIS in coastal Virginia and broadcast everywhere online at WNIS.com. Tonight, my guest is Owen King of Ironclad Distillery. Ironclad's exclusive to Virginia bourbon hails from the port of Newport News. They use small batch production methods and premium Virginia grains in their proprietary four-grain mash bill. They ferment and distill one batch at a time and all under one roof. And then they let the brackish waters from the James River and their small charred oak barrels do the rest. The results? Distinctive, nuanced bourbon and bottles too handsome, I agree with that, to hide in the liquor cabinet. And Owen, how are you doing tonight? Fantastic. Happy to be here. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Well, let's get started. Tell us, you know, a little bit about um, Ironclad. You know, we know it's over in Newport News. We know you produce amazing, amazing bourbons. But how did everything get started with you? So, uh, Distillery started in 2014. Um, We have an old uh, dry goods warehouse built that was built in 1913. Uh, that my dad bought about 15 years ago now. And, of course, your dad has the coolest name, too. He does. So, yeah, it's it gets confusing. And, you know, people always ask us if he's the real Stephen King. And then I, <laughs> I'm assuming that up in Maine, there's people always asking Stephen King if he's the real if Stephen he's, King. Yes, if he's the distiller. Yeah. yeah. I, know, uh, I know it happens that way. <laughs> So uh, yeah, so uh, the the building's thirty thousand square feet. It's ten. It's three stories, so ten thousand square feet each floor. And um, we were trying to figure out what to do with all the, all the extra space in the building. And the one thing we kept coming back to was bourbon barrels take up a lot of space. Hmm. And uh, and so with uh, with that, we kind of had that idea implanted in our minds. And one day I walked into work, and he's like, "Hey, by the way, I bought a still." And uh, <laughs> we didn't want to become bootleggers, although as, as cool as that sounds. Um, we decided to do it legally. That would and look good on a business card. <laughs> Stephen King, bootlegger. 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 Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's not one of those business cards you want to pass around. <clears throat> no, no. In certain circles, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we uh, we bought the still, and we had a little 26-count still, thinking that'd be enough to make enough bourbon for Virginia. And, you know, that we, we figured we'd be happy with that. And then we realized to fill a 53-gallon barrel with one 26-gallon still, it would take about a month. Wow. Um, so we quickly pivoted and bought five more stills, just like that one 26-gallon still, you know, giving us a 125-gallon still. And now we could fill a 53-gallon barrel in, uh, in about a week and a half. Okay. So, yeah. So, you know. Cut the time right in half, and now yes. uh, then quick. You know, as as we grew as a business and um, started having more income coming in, because you know, with bourbon, uh, the day you make it, uh, you have to wait another you know minimum year mm-hmm. uh, before you can sell it. So we uh, we were waiting for that time, and then we started selling our bourbon, and then we uh, upgraded. Now we have a nice five hundred gallon still, and. Um, although, you know, as far as uh, distilleries go, you know, if you're looking at the macro distilleries, a 500-gallon still is is basically what they use to, you know, you know, make their small, very, very, very small batch stuff. Um, we, uh, but we're kind of happy at the size we're at, and, I, and we can really uh, make sure we're producing the best bourbon possible. Tell tell us more about the the building itself because you know while the 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 back is is great because that's where everything is going on. Tell us about where folks can actually come and visit. Yeah, so uh, in 2018 we uh, opened our tasting room, um, and you were you're able to come in. Uh, we have a very talented mixologist behind our our cocktail menu every uh, that we do seasonally. Um, so you can come in, you can try a whole bunch of different really cool, um, very. Uh, edgy cocktails um you know we have some that are for everyone we have some that, that are um a little bit more avant-garde um and i like that word avant-garde yeah. i thought you were bringing the french for a little bit. that would look good on a business card too uh, yeah avant-garde bootlegger owen owen king avant-garde <laughs> i like it um so yeah so we kind of uh now and now we have our tasting room and um it's it's been a great time to have people come in. We can educate them on bourbon. We can give them tours, um, and then on top of that, you can have some really tasty cocktails and some really tasty bourbon. Now, you only focus on on brown liquors, the bourbons and, and whiskey. I mean, we can't really call it bourbon are, because of some of the. Are there other alcohols out there? I've heard rumors. Oh. I've heard rumors. Okay. Um, 
Well, I'll but, have to get back to you on that one. I'm yeah, not sure. we'll we'll do some research. You know, <laughs> we'll 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 have our our staff, yeah. you know, investigative team starting on that. But <laughs> but why why focus just on those? I mean, you know, other other distilleries they do do gin and vodka and yada yada yada. Well, you know, for one thing, uh, when you're starting a distillery, I mean, at least a, ma- a majority of distillers out there, they start by making clears. Because they want to, they want to have their aged products. And yeah. Aged products take time. Um, so you know, you throw out a vodka, you throw out a gin, because you can turn and burn those things in about a week. Um, so you know, very profitable and a quick money maker. We didn't want to go through that route. Um, I mean, I, I, as much as I do love gin, um, we decided that we didn't want to go for that money grab, uh, which. You know, is not the greatest business model. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, of you know, thinking you can with, withstand a year without bringing in in, in any money. Um, but besides that fact, uh, you know, it, it worked out for us well, which we're very lucky and uh, grateful for. Um, but uh, yeah, we really wanted to focus on on bourbon because. Uh, we really love bourbon. We mm-hmm. we believe we have a bourbon gene in us. That uh, well, I mean, it's Virginia's real heritage too. It's true. Birthplace of of, uh, of bourbon was right here in Virginia. Yes. Don't let Kentucky tell you different. Yes, no, no, we're not going to let them tell us anything. <laughs> but um, but you know, and not really. This the crow flies very far from where you are. Yeah, either. just up at Berkeley Plantation. Just about up an route, hour. Just about keep an going hour up west. Route sixty there, and there you are. You yeah. Know? No, it's really cool. Actually, our farm uh, where all of our grain is grown. Is um is about fifteen minutes east okay. of Berkeley, mm-hmm. and uh, you know our farmer he he farms the land of the oldest continually farmed uh, farm in America. Hmm. Um, so uh, he's he's a really great guy to have because he's got some history behind him. That is cool. Now, what kind of training did you need to do to become a distiller? Well, drinking. I had to drink a lot of bourbon. Oh, because I'm sorry, I have I have a theory that. Uh, you can't know what kind of bourbon you want to make until you know what kind of bourbon you like. Well, that's true. That so we true. had to drink a lot of bourbon to make sure that we knew exactly what we were going for. Um, so that was that was test number one. And once we kind of figured out where we wanted to go, um, then the next step was uh, you know how to make it. So uh, at that point, we read a book, um, and that that book was you know the guide to urban urban moonshining, um, and so. That was the first step of of really trying to figure out how to distill, but in 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 it sounds know, like a book that could change a lot of people's <laughs> lives. <laughs> well, you know, on top of that, you know, if they can do it in the backwoods of Tennessee, how hard can it be? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's that it's got, there's got to be an easy process to it, right? I I I would bet money on it. So uh, so we read the book, um, and then we you know we had our still. And then at that point, it was a lot of trial and error. And you know, with trial and error comes problems. Um, but luckily, there had already been a few established, very well-established distilleries in the state uh, that were more than happy to help us. Because if you run into a problem, more than likely, that problem has already been run into by another distiller. Mm-hmm. And they usually have come up with a solution. Um, and so that was kind of – we were very lucky and fortunate to have that, uh, you know, experience – uh, behind us that um, that people can help us along the way. Now, you know, I want to get back to, um, you know, apologizing to our neighbors to the West, but of course we do know that they were part of Virginia they and were. we were kind enough to let them break off and, and to become the state of Kentucky. And, and Bourbon County, Kentucky was Bourbon County, Virginia. Well, there's so many, you know, things behind it. So, you know, Kentucky didn't become a state till 1792. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first distillation in Kentucky was 1783, mm-hmm. which it was still Virginia. Mm-hmm. And you know the the the, the founding fa- our godfather of bourbon, you know Elijah Craig, Baptist Baptist minister from uh, Orange County. Well, yeah, from Orange County. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, you know if you really look at it, you know they Kentucky can say all they want, but. Uh, they're wrong because it's it's birthplace of bourbon. Right it here. is. It is. And that was George Thorpe in George 1620. Thorpe. Yeah, up at Berkeley Plantation. True that. Yeah, they ran out of beer and they, they saw this corn. They're like, let's make corn beer. And mm-hmm. then they, um, and then they thought it was like this is awful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what's the next step? Let's but, distill it. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Can't beat it. No. No. It got the job done. 
And of course, what he really did was more like a white dog. Yeah, you know? it was it was on age, but uh, you know, as as with anything, they they had to they had to figure out some way to store it. So there were uh, there were barrels around that they could stick them in. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is in my research for my book, uh, Virginia Distilled Four Centuries of Drinking in the Old Dominion, um, some information that I pull that I, I've pulled up. I did some some uh, genealogy and a few things on George Thorpe, and his will was not actually um, enacted um, for. Gosh, I want to say it's 15 or 20 years after his passing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it wasn't just as simple as what you're over in England and stopping what you're doing and, you know, you know, flying flying Delta over to 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 the New World, and um, so the uh, the friends of his that were doing the inventories and everything, uh, you know, they wrote everything down, and there were various bottles of like Canary and Port and yada yada yada, but they specifically list two barrels, and it just said of Virginia. So, you know, and it but it also noted, I'm paraphrasing a bit, but it did note that. It was so good that they kept it for themselves as their fee, quote unquote, of doing the inventory, yeah. and you know, and then let everybody else have everything else. <laughs> so, I mean, my hypothesis is is that that was it, and it had been at that point aged for about twenty years in one of those barrels. It wouldn't shock me. Of course, at all. it wouldn't have more than well. I mean, it may or may not have been charred out. I mean, they were you they were doing that with barrels just to clean them. Exactly. Out. Yeah. I mean, so, and it probably you know for the most part. If, you, if they were just trying to sanitize the barrel, they wouldn't char it to the level they. Char no, not it now. not exactly. Yeah. exactly. But they would. I mean, it would still have have some some sort af- of toast or. And after twenty years, right? Probably pretty damn tasty. I bet it would have been. It's too bad we don't have that time machine. Of course, you know, you go back in time, and then you have you have all those nice things like smallpox and <laughs> you know this and that. So maybe it's a good thing we don't go back in time. But you know, and. Not to mention that he was killed in 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 a in a raid yeah. you know, from Native Americans, <laughs> and you know, so and and the life expectancy was about thirty five. So maybe maybe it's nicer just to read about it and drink the stuff that you do and and pretend. Yeah, yeah. we you know live through history, and 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 this is the point where we get to just you know raise a glass to them and be like, thanks for uh, everything you did to this point. Yes, yes indeed. So now um tell us about, you know, some of the products that that you do because uh, you 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 have several regular releases, you have several um uh, special releases. Tell us tell us about a few of those. Yeah. Um so we pretty much have seven flagship bourbons. Uh they're, they're the seven bourbons we always have um in the tasting room. Uh, and there's a couple that are distributed throughout the state. Um, so our flagship is our small batch bourbon. Um, it's the one we've been making since day one. Um, it's aged in our nice in our 15 gallon barrels uh, that go usually 14 to 16 months. And then uh, when we take it out, we proof it down to about 90. So it's a really good everyday drinker. Mm-hmm. Also good neater on the rocks, uh, and um, and really good in a cocktail. It stands up well. Is that what's in this cocktail? So that is what's in this cocktail. Tell so us about this we're drink. We're currently drinking uh, a clarified milk punch. Well, I should say we we drunk. We the, drank the, the clarified. Yes. We drank. We drunk. We drunk. We drinking. We're drinking. Um, so yeah, we're we're currently drinking our clarified milk punch, which was made with our small batch. Um, so this is actually you know if we're talking about history. This is a historical cocktail. Uh, Benjamin Franklin published a recipe for clarified milk punch um, when Charles Dickens died. In his wine cellar, they had you know fifty some bottles of milk punch because once you make it, it's good forever. Um, and clarified milk punch, uh, take one down and pass it around. Then you have forty nine <laughs> exactly. bottles of clarified milk punch. Um, the really cool thing about this drink is, so it, when you drink it, it's or when you look at it, it's completely clear. Yes, you would never yes. guess it's a it's a bourbon drink, um, and you actually use milk to clarify the cocktail. Uh, so you make this bourbony boozy uh, mixture, let it sit for 24 hours, and you uh, next day you pour a little bit more citrus in there, and then you pour boiling milk over top. When you add milk to a citrus to a citrusy or acidic uh, environment, it's going to curdle. Um, after that, you're going to filter it out a couple times, and after after a couple of filtrations, it comes out perfectly clear, um, leaving all the milk curds and solids behind. But uh, you end up with this perfectly clear, velvety cocktail um, that's quite boozy. And Vel- velvety is a good word for it too. Yeah. It's just it's so smooth. Well, I hate the term mouthfeel. 
Um, so mm-hmm. velvety, I feel like it works better in that term mm. or in that in that essence. Yeah, mouthfeel brings up a a whole bunch of other things, <laughs> doesn't it? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, um, kind of like the word viscosity. Viscosity. I, I don't have a huge problem with that, but I think of vasectomy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So uh, that's what we're drinking now. I do have another one uh, that we're going to pop into here in a second. It's going to be a whiskey sour. Well, let's pop, baby. I, this, let's go. This thing's empty. Um, so this one is called... Oh, and I adore whiskey sours. Yes. This one's called Make a Career Out of Robbing Banks. So we have a new cocktail menu that we're unveiling. Um, and so there's a theme to it, but the theme is currently a secret. You have to figure it out for yourself mm. um, by coming into the tasting room. Uh, so this one is Make a Career Out of Robbing Banks. So it is a pomegranate, simple, si- or pomegranate cinnamon simple syrup um, along with lime juice. She sells sea sells by the seashore. Yeah. Nothing hard about that. Nope. Uh, and At least not on the first cocktail. <laughs> and some Angostura bitters. Uh, so yes. this is going to be – this is, again, like those really nice fall flavors um, that are just going to be those warming, you know, spiciness, spiciness that going to make you think about falling leaves and – uh, you know, crisp mornings. One of our favorite bartenders, uh, we don't live very far from Cobalt Grill in Hilltop in Virginia Beach, and Mike, um, he is making his own bitters now, and oh, we really? tasted them, his version of Angostura, and then he made a really just good orange bitters, and wow, they were outstanding. They yeah. were totally outstanding. I really want, I, I've tried making my own bitters, but I just don't have the patience to do it. Um, but I have I have a lot of uh, I give a lot of credit to people who do because it uh, it's not the easiest thing to do because you really have to be cognizant of the flavors and then it can go the wrong way if you're not tasting it constantly. Yeah, I mean this it was so good. I mean I even just like had a a teaspoonful, you know, just drink it directly. Oh, yeah. It was so it was so good. Yeah. 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 Um. So anyway, back to our bourbons. Yes, back to the bourbons. We uh. We went off topic there for a second. That's okay. Now that's welcome so, to my ADD world. <laughs> so we have our, our flagship bourbon, our small batch. That's available in every every single ABC store in the state. Uh, then we have next our lineup is our straight bourbon. Uh, so straight bourbon means it has to age minimum two holy years. Holy crap, this is good. I'm sorry to keep interrupting <laughs> you, but holy crap, this yeah. is good. Nice, very fallish, wow. right? Wow. Like you want to put a scarf around your neck and walk out and uh, with. With you know the scarf, it was apricot. Yeah, yes, he had one eye in the mirror when he watched himself go <laughs> by. Oh wow! And uh, so yes, yeah, so a straight bourbon means age minimum two years in a fifty-three in a, in a barrel. Um, and so in that barrel, or after that, you can take it out. You can call it straight bourbon. Um, so that straight just kind of uh, gives an age statement to it. Um, after our straight bourbon, we have our finishes. So we do a, a few different finished bourbons. Um, we have our, our maple syrup, our hot honey, um, our red wine cask finish. Um, that hot and our honey's amazing. And our coffee. Um, and so basically we're not adding any flavors to those. What we do is um, we're only picking up new flavors from uh, from the barrels that had aged a different product other than bourbon, such as hot honey, which is a habanero-infused honey, or a maple syrup or coffee beans or red wine. And then we we put our bourbon back in there and finish it in the barrel. So um, we're not actually adding any flavors, just picking up new characteristics um, from different wood um, that has now aged different product other than bourbon. Mm. Uh, And then we also have our Missouri Toasted Oak. So our barrels come from Missouri, which is the place where my dad was born. Mm. So that's why we want to give a little homage to that. Um, The show me state. That's right. and so with the Missouri Toasted Oak, it's an award-winning bourbon, just won uh, a nice medal at the American Distilling Institute uh, um, Craft Spirits Showcase. Mm-hmm. So that was great. Um, and so this one's really cool. So it's a double oak uh, finished bourbon. Um, so that means it's gone one year, or it aged in a one charred oak, and then we took it out and put it into a lightly toasted oak. So my best way of describing this is, you know, you take a marshmallow, you stick it directly into the flames. You're gonna you know, it catches fire immediately. Mm-hmm. You you extinguish the fire. You take a bite of it. It's still sweet, but it's got those like slightly acrid, yeah. more more very dark caramelization flavors. Mm-hmm. Now with the toasted oak barrel, or now when you do this, you're gonna take the marshmallow. You're gonna stick it into the coals of the fire. Slowly rotate it so it gets to that perfectly golden brown. Mm. You're gonna eat that marshmallow, and now it's gonna be twice as sweet because now you've just caramelized all those sugars instead of burning those sugars. Yeah, yeah. Um, so like that's why. So with the, with the toasted oak bourbon. You're going to end up actually getting 
sweeter notes to it or more vanillins, more or more caramelized flavors because of that toasting instead of charring. And then uh, starting on October 9th, um, we will release our next finish, which is going to be a once-a-year release. Um, I actually brought some with me here today. Oh, it nice. is our Hampton Roads Honey Finish. Okay. Um, so this one, I, I, I kind of stole this idea from another distillery in Tennessee. Um, but then I kind of did my own spin on it. So I found a whole bunch of local apiaries, um, and I gave them – so they're all within 30 miles of the distillery. I gave them our barrels on a stipulation that when they're done aging their honey in my used bourbon barrels, they give them back to me. And then I was going to refill them with bourbon, um, and then I was going to age them for a year, uh, take the bourbon back out, uh, empty it out, and we're going to – and I was going to call it the Hampton Rose Honey Finish. So all the barrels and the, all the honey that we used – Came from a radius of 30 miles from around the distillery. Wow. wow. Um, and it's uh, really, really cool. So it's got this really nice, I mean, honey up front. Um, it's going to have some more sweetness to it because of the honey, but it uh, it worked out really well and I'm very happy with it. Yes. Excellent. Excellent. Well, so now let's talk more just about bourbon in general because all bourbon is whiskey, but not all whiskey is bourbon. What, tell, tell us about that. Yeah. So, um, you know, their whiskey is kind of like you know the the main name brand. So, uh, you know you've got your scotches, you've got your Japanese whiskeys, you've got your Irish whiskeys, you've got your Tennessee whiskeys. All of those are whiskey. None of those are bourbon. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that's you know the easiest way to describe it is you know bourbon is America's native spirit. But bourbon, so bourbon has the most amount of rules of any alcohol in the world that we have to follow to make bourbon. Um, and uh, so you know. So, kind of like how scotch has to be in Scotland, bourbon has to be made in America. Scotch has to be 100% single or malted barley. Bourbon has to be 51% corn. Um, so both of these are a whiskey, and whiskey just basically means it is a grain-based alcohol aged in oak. Um, but they're so you know they have that base name brand, but then they have a different subset to it um, to kind of explain that they are uh, a different product, but still under the same subset. Mm-hmm. Okay, excellent, excellent. And now I think there's a misnomer, too, that bourbon has to be made in Kentucky to be bourbon. And, you know, like we've already touched on that, we are, as our friends from the West, yes. think that they're the birthplace. Our distinguished friends. Our distinguished friends. The, when they established in 1964 that uh, bourbon was America's native spirit, uh, they did not strictly say that it had to be made, made in Kentucky. It can be made in any of the 50 states in the United States. But it has to be made in the United States. It cannot be made anywhere else in the world. Excellent. Excellent. So the scotch, they can have their scotch and yada, yada, yada. But we've got our bourbon. Damn straight. Yes, indeed. So I, I want to hear more about the, the whiskey sour, you know, here, too, um, because it, it's it's obviously a whiskey sour. But, boy, it's just, you know, with those autumnal notes, you know, in it, um, it's amazing. What what. I mean, do you like just regular whiskey sours? I so I think the whiskey sour is one of the best cocktails. Yeah. Uh, it's great. It's a very utilitarian cocktail. Is is in the fact that any time of the year, it's great. Um, I love I love them with egg white. Um, I yeah. think it adds it adds a nice um, body to the cocktail. Mm-hmm. Um, with that frothiness, that's another word. Frothy. 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 Yeah, yeah. There's some there's some connotations there too. <laughs> You know, one of the best whiskey sours I have ever had is at a World of Good Cafe in Norfolk's Ocean mm-hmm. View. Um, I'm, I'm, I had one, and it was so good. I had a second, then I had a third. Yeah, and then we called Uber. It's a slippery slope. Yeah, then we called Lyft. So it's like, yeah, it's like because it was just amazing. I that was like that was the cocktail I literally grew up on, uh, along with the Bloody Mary. And when I say that. We would go out. I uh, grew up in suburban Atlanta. I've been in Virginia for 31 years. But there was, you know, just those average, you know, quasi upscale, modern, moderate, moderately priced steakhouses, you know, yeah. back in the 60s and 70s. And so Steak Manor was the one that we would go to on, you know, kind of special occasions or this or that. And, you know, so I learned to order a cocktail because, you know, Tommy, our server, would come over and I'd say, Tommy, I think I'll start with a Shirley Temple tonight. <laughs> and um, very good, sir. And um, but my father um, always ordered a whiskey sour. And so he would let me sip the foam off the top and he would also let me eat the maraschino cherries. Nice. So that kind of got me on a taste for 
whiskey sours about in 1969 yeah. when I was four years old. Yeah, <laughs> so I come by it honestly, folks. <laughs> well, and, and but unfortunately, it's like a lot of other whiskey cocktails that. Uh, through the 70s and 80s got really bastardized. Yeah. And where they, they started using sour mix instead of fresh lime, fresh lemon or lime juice, and they uh, and they started using, you know, not a good simple syrup. They started using a, a crappy simple syrup. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you could think, oh, my God, I'm not going to like a whiskey sour because it's going to either be too sour or too sweet. And, you know, throughout the 80s, probably too sweet. Um, but now, with the, you know, resurgence of craft cocktails, especially pre-prohibition cocktails, um, it's it's really nice to see that you can actually get a proper whiskey sour again, um, where it's going to have you know fresh lemon juice. You're going to use a really good so- a simple syrup that mostly most likely has made, and then top of egg white, which is really what's going to make the, make and break the cocktail. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, and and I remember you know um, you know later when I could order myself a cocktail and then and then drink it, you know. Um, even if I did have a fake ID later, but um, you know there were certain places that I went in Atlanta where they st- the bartenders, you know, were in their you know fifties and so and so they were doing it the the, yeah. the proper way. And it's so amazing, you know. I'm, I remember the first time I had a martini, and you know. And it was done the proper way. I mean, no doubt that this was the classic '50s martini because the guy was like 70 years old. <laughs> and um, but you know, then you know later you're you're right. You know, you start uh, you start tasting you know some of the drinks. You're like, what the hell happened? You know. <laughs> well, it's like so, an old fashioned. You know, when when, when yeah. someone decided they wanted muddle fruit in the bottom of a glass, like that is not an old fashioned. You've just no. ruined a cocktail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's. Yeah, I totally agree. And and like, and how lazy not to be able to make your own simple syrup, right? I mean, <laughs> the the, the uh, simplicities in the name. Yes, yes, <laughs> they call it simple syrup for a reason. It's equal parts water, equal parts sugar, yeah. or or some sweetener, you know, honey or something like that, maple syrup. But yeah, oh my gosh, I, I totally agree. <laughs> well, um, what what is your go to cocktail, uh, bourbon or otherwise? So you know, I. I drink seasonally, um, mm-hmm. I, I, like I think a lot of people do. And so fall, my, my, my cocktail of choice is bourbon and cider. I think there's nothing mm-hmm. better. Um, you, you know, in the Didn't nice, you bring that to our I show have brought once? that before, yes, yeah. I remember that. Um, but, you know, you don't necessarily have to use top shelf bourbon. Um, you can use whatever bourbon you have around. Um, and you do about, you know, a quarter of a glass bourbon, fill the rest with ice, and then top it off with, uh, with apple cider. It is... Fall in a glass, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're just coming out of summer where I would drink margaritas nonstop because yeah. uh, margaritas, you know, especially with a nice anejo um, or uh, or, rebos- or reposado tequila. What's your language? Yeah, <laughs> or, or a family show? But you, I mean, you do that, and you've got, I mean, you've got just the most refreshing summer drink along with the gin and tonic. Um, but yeah, it's I, I I those are the you know those are the ones that I always go to um, you know gin and tonic, uh, margaritas, uh, bourbon and cider, and in the winter when you know it's short days, long nights, cold, it's just bourbon neat. You well, don't have to get fancy. Oh at that yeah, point. no, no, no. I totally, I totally agree. <laughs> One of these fabulous. Tell us about these ice cubes, by the way. Yeah. So uh, there's a local guy. Um, his name is Matt Jones. He owns a company called Shizzle and Shaker. Um, and so he has this company that makes clear ice, and that is his business. He sells frozen water, and it's the craziest thing in the world. Um, but you know, if you're looking to have, if you're looking to pay a little bit more, or you are looking to have a really good classic, uh, classy cocktail. Um, you want to have the drink look good as opposed to having you know cloudy ice in there. So, um, you know, he runs a service that is, I think, very useful in the cocktail game. And uh, really lucky to have him, and, and he's you know been, been super successful of recent, um, and um, it's just a the process of making the ice. You know, he starts with a three hundred pound block of ice and chops it down to one by one inch square cubes. After that, which it's it's incredibly labor intensive, but um, it's just really cool. I mean, clear ice is cool. Yeah, it is, and. Um and and you know I think too you know without the 
the air pockets that's in there and all is just is you know it doesn't melt as fast so you're not diluting your cocktail as quickly and you know there's just um it i think it is just a cleaner taste overall you know too no especially i mean if you're drinking if you're going to drink bourbon on the rocks i think having one big cube is a lot better than having you know a whole bunch of smaller cubes where the you know the surface surface liquid or surface area is so much smaller are so much greater that you're going to melt so much faster and you're going to dilute your whiskey. This was this, which is just going to slowly melt. And yes. only uh, as you drink, you're going to just kind of open up the whiskey more and more as you're drinking through. So it's, it, it works out really well, even, even for that perspective. And, you know, if you want to make clear ice at home, it's, it's not difficult. It just involves double boiling water and stuff like that. So uh, in our companion blog to this uh, to this podcast, I'll include some steps for that, too, Perfect. just in case you don't want to. <laughs> you know, buy your eyes, yeah. you know, per se. Um, I can see why, why, especially businesses would want to. But you can um, also buy that new Samsung refrigerator. That's yeah, like five thousand dollars, and it, it'll make uh, ice spheres for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean, that's that's another option too. You want to put a I'm, link to that? I might hold off on purchasing <laughs> a five thousand dollar refrigerator. But I it know. makes spheres. I mean, like, come on. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no but. Um, yeah, you know, I I could I could hire a houseboy to come and make eyes with spheres, and um, yeah, you know, I mean your return on investment. And enjoy is looking be... looking at him a lot better than I would. The, I was gonna say your return on investment is probably better for the houseboy. Yeah, yeah. So um, so yeah, but food for thought. Yeah. You know? um, all right. So what are we gonna taste next here? All right. So next up, uh, I brought a sample of the Hampton Roads Honey Finished Bourbon. Um, so this one, uh, we're going to pour neat. Um, it is 103 proof. Uh, so we took it down a little bit out of the barrel. Um, and anyone want ice? No, I don't. Perfect. Uh, so this one was just bottled today. Mm. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just, uh, so... Uh, October 9th is when we're going to release this at the distillery, and I'm just really excited for it. I think it's going to be really cool that people can really see. The really cool thing was the the all the different honeys that we got that came out of the barrels. When we got to try them, uh, they all tasted different, and it's because you know for one, all the bees were pollinating different flowers. So you know some were wildflowers, some were. Uh, does you that know, make the bee a slut? It just to go around all of those different flowers, cheese. You know, I'm sorry, Drew. Did I offend you with that? No, Patrick. Oh, of course not. <laughs> okay. You know this is not a family show, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And to contact Drew, call Erico seven five seven. I'm sorry. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so the, actually, I, I, I've tried. You know, trying honey. Everywhere, I, I one I think bees are amazing, and and the the fact that they, you know there's bees dropping out left and right is very sad, and it I, is. I and I was, I'm really hoping that we can donate something to uh, bee charities so that we can um, continue to help uh, grow, or you know help any way we can with the bees, um, and but on top of that, I think Hanton Roads actually has some of the best tasting honey in the world. Mm. Um, we uh, so just north of the of uh, of Ironclad, there's a there's a town there's a little area called Hilton Village, uh, yes. and there's a guy with a small apiary there. And I don't know what it is about. Doesn't that sound like a place that would hold gorillas? It doesn't a- sound apiary. like a place where you'd have bees. That's yeah, for sure. Yeah, let's uh, go down and see the gorillas at the apiary. Yeah, at the apiary, uh, and it's the weirdest thing. But the honey that he gets tastes like orange blossom honey. Wow. There's no oranges in no. Hilton Village. No, there's I can, not. I can assure you of that. There's really not in Virginia either. <laughs> you know, maybe an ornamental tree that yeah. somebody gets lucky by wrapping it up. Um, in the but winter. it's that. I just think it's the coolest thing that uh, you know the, the honey we get, and you know you, you can when you try honey at a grocery store, you, the majority of the time you're getting wildflower honey, and in wildflower honey, honey it tastes like honey. It's like you know when you yeah, think of honey, what you place, classically think that's of. what you think of. Um, but when you're getting honey from you know local guys who are out there trying to make sure the bee population stays at a safe level, um, the bees are pollinating everything that's in the area, whether it be honeysuckle trees or or apple trees or peach trees, and um, and it's just really cool to see the flavors that they come back with and when it, when uh, from what they pollinated. Um, and it's really cool that actually I think it comes through in the bourbon. Mm-hmm. Um, the, well, the 
The nose on this is amazing, by the way. I mean, number one, um, you know, sometimes you stick your nose down in, in you know, a spirit and it just it singes out your, your nostrils. This is so mellow and um, definitely, definitely, you know, you get the toast the oak but you you get you get that honey smell you get that that certain richness almost um almost maple syrupy in a yep. way um you know and then on the palate it's like so smooth velvety again it's got a good mouth feel there you, you go. know it's not frothy it's at viscous all. it's yeah yes it's <laughs> you know the viscosity of this um oh my goodness i would drink this all the way to the apiary and back but uh no it's really a beautiful product thank you i uh, know i'm i just I, I think it was a really cool idea that someone else already came up with and i just wanted to piggyback off of it well nobody you know nobody remakes the, the mouse trap you just make a new version of exactly it. and so I, I was just happy to um that we had the opportunity to, to find some local beekeepers that wanted to uh, experiment with me as I tried this, and um, I think it turned out really successful. So we've actually got uh, two of the beekeepers coming down this weekend um, to drop off next year's round of barrels. So wow. um, I'm really excited to get next year's batch going. That is excellent. That is excellent. So now, if you made another spirit, what do you think that you would make? I really do love gin, yeah, um, gin and I think wonderful. I think gin would be a lot of fun. Um, just because you can really experiment with the botanicals into a uh, in your gin basket and really make some really cool flavored things. But at the same point, I love tequila and I love yeah. aged tequila. I mean, yeah. granted, you can't. So tequila is like bourbon. You have to only make tequila in Mexico. Otherwise, it's called an agave spirit. So if you ever see that, you're drinking tequila. Um, but I, I so it would it would be a toss up between gin and tequila, but. Uh, I mean, I already have the barrels for for aging tequila, so I feel like mm. go that go that go down that direction. I know a good agave farmer in Mexico. Let's get it started. Make yeah yeah call Eric up. Um, absolutely, we had uh, on our show. Um, uh, I don't know if you've been to Deep Creek Distillery, Royal Ferguson. Oh yeah, uh, and his gin, uh, which uh, has accents of lavender in it. Oh, very cool. Was amazing. I mean, and I was a I drink that without ice, and I drink that even you know not even chilled or anything. Yeah. It's just that good. Yeah, and I drink a lot of it too. It was just <laughs> that beautiful. It was so smooth. Yeah, and uh, that those notes of the lavender, and all I could think of was. You know, I got to get this bottle home with me and make a Negroni. <laughs> it know? is Negroni week. Yes, yes. So you have to, you have to get it. You have to yes. drink it while you can. Oh, I, I've had so many Negronis in my life that every week is Negroni week. <laughs> it's just it's you know my blood runs Campari. Oh. You know, yes. it's good that it's red. Yes, it so is good that really it's red. No, no, not not until they start doing the lab work and they're like. <laughs> you know, Mr. Evans Hilton, are you aware that your blood is 100 proof? And I'm like, yes, yes, I am. That adds up. It does. <laughs> it does. But you know what they say, whatever gets you through the night. That's right. So um, tell, tell me a little bit about what you think the current state of the Virginia distilled spirit scene is and, and where uh, not necessarily you hope it will be, but where you think it might be in the next five years or so. So, you know, we are very lucky in the fact that uh, we now have over 80 uh, yes. DSPs in the state. That's amazing. Um, which uh, DSP stands for Distilled Spirits Plant. So mm -hmm. it, it means it's a production facility that can make alcohol or make liquor. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that's a really good start. And I think that only brings more tourism. I mean, if you look at Kentucky and how they have um, – how they have their bourbon trail, um, we could do a similar thing like that, and oh, yeah. I, and we've we have worked on doing a craft spirits tour of Virginia, um, where you can kind of hop around, and then if you get enough stamps, you get a free shirt. Uh, I feel like that's a good step in the right direction of where Virginia craft spirits is going. Um, we have countless award winning distilleries um, that are making fantastic spirits that are um, that are at the top of the charts. You know, around the that are topping anywhere, any uh, you know, other craft makers in yeah. the state or in in the uh, United States. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that's only going to bring in more tourism, and then on top of that, I think you're going to continue to see more craft uh, craft distilleries open up, which is you know awesome. I I, I love that because uh, we kind of are under the belief that a rising tide lifts all ships, and 
Um, the more people that come here to open up businesses, uh, you know, whether it be beer, wine, um, liquor, mead, cider, anything like that, it's just going to bring more people around to draw, uh, to drink it. And so, um, if there's one thing people who love craft alcohol like, it's they love bar hopping yeah. and they love going from place to place to try different things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think. Hopefully, you know, we continue to grow the way we've continued or the way the way have things have gone. Um, and um, just hopefully everything stays the course. Um, yeah, so far it's it's been going really well. Uh, it seems like legislatively wise, uh, they're on our side. Things have continued to um, go the direction we've wanted to. Um, and it's it's been Really nice to see how things have started from when, or where, where things began when we first opened to where things are now. It's it's very night and day. You know, when we were trying to get our license to make it, uh, start a distillery in the state, Virginia was known as the second hardest state to open a distillery. Hmm. We were DSP. Oh, we were like the fifteenth distillery opening up in the state. Um, there and and now there's over eighty. So it goes to show that you know things have gotten easier and they're more willing to allow distilleries to open up. Um, which is exactly what you want to see. Well, and I think a lot of it too. Um, the current state and and the and and you know encouraging more growth and legislation that you know that makes that possible is literally just a matter of state pride too. Um, you know we we have a we have several wonderful culinary calling cards in our state. You know the blue crab, the oysters. Um, country ham, although there's not very many places that are owned by Virginia companies anymore making I know. country ham. I hate which, to see Edwards ham. Oh, it's well, heartbreaking. There's Darden's country ham, uh, which I, I love. But I've got so I've already I've already talked to Mr. Darden. Yeah, uh, and I'm asking him as soon as his hams come to cure, uh, which is January this year or no, January 2022, he's going to give two of them to us, and we're going to hang him in our barrel room mm. for a year. Yeah, and then we're going to let him cure in there. Nice. Uh, and that's going to be another party when we'll open those up, slice them off. Mm-hmm. It'll be amazing. Yes. Well, folks, be sure to join our Facebook page for more food news that you can use. Go to facebook.com slash group slash Virginia Eats and Drinks. A big thank you to Owen for joining us on the Virginia Eats and Drinks podcast. And for more information on Ironclad Distillery, visit ironcladdistillery.com. Thank you so much, Owen. Thank you, Patrick. Cheers. Virginia is a state rich in history, including eats and drinks. And in our Deja Chew segments, we explore the rich stories that flavor the Commonwealth. September, October, November, December, January, February, and March all have a delicious something-something in common is each month containing the letter R. So why is that so delicious? Because folklore allows us to eat oysters only during these months, eschewing the warmer weather days from May through August. Although oysters are abundant and, in fact, edible year-round, it's spawning season during that time, and their little quivery bodies use up a lot of energy to carry on the family name, often leaving them spent and a bit shriveled. In cooler weather, oysters prepare for hibernation, much like many of us do, and they become plump and plentiful. Oysters are low in calorie and fat. They're high in zinc, iron, calcium, and vitamin A. They can be prepared in many ways, so why not try a few different ones? Folks roast them, steam them, fry them, and eat them on the half shell. The latter method allows all the true flavors of this beautiful bivalve to really shine through. In Virginia, oysters are found off the Atlantic coast, across the Chesapeake Bay, and in the Bay's tributaries. And oysters addressed is important, as with wine grapes, the terroir, or the environment, affects the flavor. Oysters that grow right on the ocean are generally saltier than oysters harvested up a river. Oysters from or on or near the bay have a salt level somewhere in between. Their location causes levels of other minerals, too, like zinc, and nutritional values can vary as well. Because of this, oysters are typically classified by place names. On restaurant menus and at fishmongers, you're going to see names like Linhaven, Chincoteague, James River, Rappahannock, and Rourke River. Tom Gallivan produces what he calls handcrafted heirloom oysters at Shooting Point Oyster Company. 
We grow our main uh, spawn of Nassawattix Creek and others in a few other spots on the bay side, says Galavan, who holds a degree in aquaculture. Some are also fished off Hog Island on the ocean side, which amps up the salinity levels. Galavan thinks that there is an innate sweetness to oysters that are grown in the bay. Pay attention to where the oyster is from, Galavan advises. When you find an oyster that has a specific name associated with it, you're dealing with someone who has gone through the effort of growing them in a specific place. If you enjoy it, there's a good chance that you're going to be able to experience that again. Galavan says to eat an oyster raw is to taste the place where the oyster grew. I like to chew it just a little bit so that you'll actually get the flavor of the oyster proper, he notes. Savor it for three or four chews and swallow it down and wait for a minute to see what the finish is like. They're very much like wine. You don't pour yourself a coffee cup full of wine and clug it down. You want to sit there and savor it. For more history plated, visit us at virginiaeatsanddrinks.com. Here's a favorite interview from the archives of the Virginia Eats and Drinks show, heard Friday evenings from 6 until 7, on air in coastal Virginia on AM 790 WNIS, and online everywhere at WNIS.com. A symbol of the American West, in the past few decades, bison has become a symbol of healthier red meat. July is National Bison Month, trying to horn its way in with traditional grill-outs throughout the summer season. So just what is bison, and does it have a beef with cattle? Dylan Wakefield of Pendulum Fine Meats in Norfolk, Kent, knows his way around beef and chicken and pork and bison, too. And Dylan, how's it going? It's going great. How are you doing, Patrick? Doing good. Doing good. Thanks. So, so what is bison? Is it, is it the same as buffalo? So, yeah... The bison is oftentimes is interchangeable, and especially in the meat industry and the consumer industry is buffalo. I don't think technically they're a buffalo, what we know is like a water buffalo. Yeah, yeah. There's a slight differentiation, but it is a, yeah, it's, it is also on packaging for us, we would call it buffalo. But yeah, it's a, it's a large bovine animal, you know, hoofed, four, four-legged animal, red meat. So It's got that but Quasimodo hump there going on there. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, and very American. I mean, as far as I think... Um, it's it's the American you know big animal plains animal that we've had that that really is exclusive to North America for the most yes. part, especially an animal that looks like that. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I mean, when you think of the American West, that's if somebody said you know animal, that's I mean I think that's what most people would think about. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Well, when, yeah, when I'm familiar with that. That's <laughs> <American> right. West, that <laughs> that's right. Well, so when did the popularity of bison as a meat source? really start getting into full swing it seems like it's been for a while it has been quite a while you know i i I, we've talked about it growing up in texas i think i i remember people farming buffalo buffalo and bison or buffalo bison for i I mean 30 40 years ago when i was uh, Mm. starting to sell the meat you know Mm -hmm. so i think that it really the resurgence of it I think traces it actually back to 76 the bicentennial of the country okay and they wanted to like really celebrate that animal. So they actually had people just start growing them and start farming them more or less. And, and of course, at any time when something, when you're farming any animal, you gotta, you gotta use it and for its intended purposes. And they're a good, they're a good animal to use for that. Uh, yes. As far as meat production. That's awesome. Well, so now what, what are the different bison cuts and the different products that folks could find typically in market? So usually, most of the time, you're going to find the basics. And I think it's probably because what we associate with, like, a, say, a good ribeye from a cow, we don't, we don't associate with a, with a buffalo or bison. Meaning, um, you know, like a lot of that marbling and, and fat content isn't on a bison. That's right. Um, yeah. So they don't, you don't often see it. Occasionally you might, um, but uh, like a ribeye or, or a tenderloin or a New York strip. But what you mostly see, though, is ground ground bison and stew meat bison. And those are the two most popular and the most versatile things that you could do with it. Yes. Um, but those are the two that are readily available for the most part almost anywhere. Um, but there are some specialty places that might do some other things. The other very popular thing I think they've been doing with it a lot lately is jerky production. Yeah, I have um, seen a lot of that. bison jerky is definitely mm-hmm. very popular. Yes, indeed. Well, um, what, what's a favorite way that you enjoy cooking bison? Um, I think my favorite way is burgers. 
I really do like a bison yeah. burger for the most part. Yeah. Um, they are. They tend to be a little lean for me, though. I mean, I think I maybe I pardon the pun, but I butcher it up a little bit, and I just throw in a I throw in bacon in it um, just because they are so lean. Yes. And but I, I do enjoy it because the flavor is different. It's a little bit different than beef, and I think that's the other thing. And it's not necessarily like a gaminess, but it's a sweetness. It's a little bit sweeter. Um, but it, so it gives you something different if you're always, you know, if you're over beef, still really need that hankering for red meat. It's a great product for that. Yes. Uh, the other thing that we do a lot of it back home when I was growing up, my dad actually did a lot of it was chili. We used to eat bites and chili a lot. So oh, that was yeah. Another, that's another perfect thing to do with it. Excellent. Excellent. And um, is, is it pretty easy to find in stores? Do you carry it? Yeah. So we carry it frozen. Um on occasion, so we do sometimes have a little bit of supply issue because we're trying to use stuff from the eastern shore of Virginia or from from Virginia. I do know they usually have it good a supply of it at farmers markets, and then most of the times, yes, though it is actually pretty available. Okay. Um, as far as if I wanted to carry some other types, and I have done that, I'll do that for special order. Um, then I can get some stuff that's out of like South Dakota. Uh, they have a lot of products there. Um, that is pretty readily available. I'm pretty sure um, even most grocery stores, actually, if you dig kind of around their freezer case, but uh, Whole Foods would have some. Uh, and then there's all, uh, the other big thing that it is, you mentioned the dietary things with it, is like the paleo diet and the paleo clubs yes. and yes. all those. It is the mail order, like you just get four pounds of ground beef every week to you. And I, a lot of people do that. That's the okay. way they get their bison. Okay. It's just getting a drop shipped to them every week or like a weekly supply. Excellent. Excellent. Well, very good. Well, folks, Dylan has been generous enough to share some of his tips and tricks and recipes for a bison burger and also bison chili, which we're going to have on our blog. So visit virginiaeatsanddrinks.com or also visit our Facebook group, facebook.com slash group slash Virginia Eats and Drinks. Also, for more information on Pendulum Fine Meats, visit pendulummeats.com. And Dylan, it is always great to talk with you. I hope you have a great weekend. Thank you. You too. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Virginia Eats and Drinks podcast, serving you all the food news that you can use wherever you listen to your podcast. Be sure to join us again. And for more information on Virginia Eats and Drinks, visit virginiaeatsanddrinks.com. I'm your host, Patrick Evans-Hilton.